Jesus. And one of the things that we are gathering around as a church family is this idea of following Jesus together. If you've ever wondered what what there is for us in these long genealogies that Alyssa just bravely powered through, amazing. Let's put our hands together for Alyssa. She's like the hardest sermon text reading of all time. Uh, and what we see in, uh, we see a lot of stuff in the genealogy of Jesus, Jesus' backstory. But one thing we see in a big picture is that backstories matter. Our past, our families, they matter, and they, they influence us. And uh, we see Jesus coming from a real flesh and blood family line. And one of the most beautiful things about uh, Jesus' uh, family line is that it includes women. Uh, one, one phrase I might get in trouble for is that I believe Jesus was the first and truest feminist that ever walked the earth. He saw women as God made them and celebrated them and saw their, their worth and their value and brought them into his ministry. And the fact that women are included in his family line is a, is a major statement. And so uh, this Advent season, we're looking at the mothers of Jesus. There's four of them in there, and uh, we're going to be lo- looking at the lives they lived, what it, what it was about their lives that... Um, got them included in, uh, in, in Jesus' genealogy. And uh, our prayer is that we know Jesus more. If we want to follow him, we need to know him. And so our prayer is that we'll know him more as we know his, his kind of family background. Uh, this morning, I'm not preaching. Uh, our dear, dear friend, Pastor Lou Damiani, is going to preach. You can come on up whenever you finish writing your sermon. Um, right now? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Great. <laughs> um, but Lou's been a dear, dear friend to our church. He's kind of, uh, kind of like my pastor, if you will, and I've adopted him as my grandpa, but everybody does that who meets him, so <laughs> it's not really that special. It's just in my head, you know, he's, he's my grandpa, and uh, he's been a, a dear blessing to our church, just offering a, a voice of wisdom. He was a pastor for many, many years, and now he works with InterVarsity, right? Navigators. Oh, I do that every time. It's called the Nagavators, yeah. yeah na- right. the, na- the Nagavators, the and he's Nagavators. also on staff at Sojourn Traverse City, one of the churches that we that we partner with. And so a dear blessing to me, and, and I know we all uh, just rejoice when he comes and we hear a man of, of wisdom and steadfastness bring the word. Uh, so let me pray for him, and then uh, we'll let him uh, bring the word here. Mm-hmm. Father God, I praise you uh, for um, just the, the way that you broke into our darkness in the person of Jesus, uh, the way uh, your son put on flesh, being fully God and fully man, and was born as a baby and walked among, amongst us. I thank you for what you say about our humanity and the fact that Jesus took on our humanity. I, I praise you for uh, what it says about your desire to know us and love us and be with us. I praise you for the love that I feel and our church feels through, uh, through our brother Lou, uh, Pastor Lou. I pray that you would just bless him, give him delight in the word you've given him to bring, uh, that he would forget himself and just rejoice yes. in the, the truth of your word and the, the beauty of the gospel. Would we all hear your call uh, to further up and further in into life with you as Lou preaches? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Josh. It's great to be here among you again uh, this Christmas season. So, you know, and uh, I don't know that many of you may not remember this, but some of you may likely do that. Uh, during the 1970s, Alex Haley wrote a fascinating best selling book entitled Roots, simple title. And the, root, uh, the book was based on Haley's research as he sought to trace his own family roots as a black man, as an Afro-American, back to Africa. But what especially energized um, this whole movement was there was a, a, a mini-series based on Haley's finding that quickly birthed a new American craze. 
everybody and their brother wanted to likewise climb back through their own family tree and examine where their roots came from. This included one of Patty's relatives, who um, some cousin umpteen times removed, who went through their family tree and lo and behold discovered that he and Patty are somehow distantly related to Eli Whitney, the guy that invented the cotton gin. So that is where you inherited your creative ingenuity, right? A few years later, I discovered some distant relative of mine had conducted their own roots research. My middle name is Hobbes, as in Calvin and Hobbes. And um, I discovered that a book was published about the Hobbes ancestry that goes all the way back to 1640 when my 11 times great-grandfather Abraham moved from England to North Carolina. And within this lineage, I had this distant Emily Hobbs who married George Walton and George signed the Declaration of Independence. How also, there was a five times great-grandfather which lists, among other things, all the slaves he was bequeathing to family members which broke my heart. You see, when we research and record our genealogies, we're, quickly, we're quick to highlight the Eli Whitney and the George Walton types, the powerful, the rich, the famous, but not the infamous, and not the scoundrels, not the slave owners, nor the Damiani uncles of mine that were members of the Corsican Mafia. We would just as soon forget about those guys, but not God. If you read the Bible with a halfway observant eye, you're going to discover that God is very much into genealogies. And if you do a bit of climbing through these biblical family trees, you'll discover a few things. First of all, there is a highly significant purpose for every genealogy he chose to record. He didn't just do it to provide hard-pronounced names for us to verbally fumble over. And believe me, I fumble over mine too. And I'm supposed to be a pastor, you know? What is that name? And why did they give it to somebody? Um, there is also an internally significant purpose in this sense. He includes the very kind of people we would tend to exclude. Especially in the particular genealogy in Matthew 1, how Matthew, how the New Testament starts out is amazingly significant. Let's look at Matthew chapter 1 as we start this morning before we go on over to Ruth. Matthew chapter 1, this chapter, by the way, uh, verse, the first 17 verses of this chapter record the genealogy leading up to Jesus' kingly line. And these genealogies are divided, uh, verse 17 tells us, into three segments of 14 each. 
there is the generation, um, or the, the 14 generations from Abraham to David, then 14 from David to the, the deportation of Judah into captivity, and then 14 from the deportation to the birth of Jesus Christ. We're going to just look briefly at the first of these, these 14 generations in this first segment, chapters, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Four women are mentioned in this segment. You might want to get your pen out and circle them. Notably, Sarah, the wife of Abraham, is not one of them, nor is Rebecca. Here are the women that are mentioned. First is Tamar. And I know Josh will cover this in more detail in the weeks ahead, but briefly, Tamar is the one who played the role of a prostitute in order to get impregnated by her father-in-law, Judah. Next is Rahab, speaking of prostitutes. She was a professional prostitute. Not just that, she was a Canaanite. A, a nation so depraved, Joshua was commanded to completely destroy the people. Next is Ruth in verse 5. Another Gentile outcast from the land of Moab, a very hated nation. And six, verse 6, and the fourth one is the wife of Uriah. Not mentioned by name, but if you're familiar with your scripture, her name was Bathsheba the one who committed adultery with King David. Let's add it up. Prostitutes, Gentile outcasts, and an adulteress. These are the names highlighted. What kind of genealogy is this? Not exactly the pristine blue bloodline that you would expect from the Messiah to be born from. Each one of these gals formerly had a tainted reputation or a lineage, but they actually became the ancestress to Jesus Christ. Not only so, not only so, but shockingly, they are highlighted in this text. They're not hidden. So do you think God has a point to make here? Oh, he's got a huge one. From beginning to end, God has always been about grace in his work with mankind. And from the very start of the New Testament, he makes a point for us to know this is why my son has come. My son has come to, to my my son has come to make the Jew and the Gentile one. My son has come equally so for the patriarchs as he did for the prostitutes. I'm all about grace, and my work is all about grace. God is an inclusive God, not an exclusive God not a respecter of persons. So starting with the very first verses of the New Testament, he wants us to see that his love and his redemption extends to all mankind, regardless of your past. 
that his unmerited forgiveness and favor plays no favorites. And so I love this because it's like the very, this prelude up to his actual birth is like an indication of what's going to be accomplished at his death. From the get-go, he is saying, my work through my son is going to be the work of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world for all mankind. Without partiality, my offer is made. Without, no matter who you are, I'm here for you. He has come for you. So over the next four Advent Sundays, yes, these are four of the mothers of Jesus that are highlighted in this text. That in, in the midst of their sin, in the midst of, regardless of their past, they came to trust in a God greater than themselves and followed him. And now we're a part of the great ancestry of his son. So let's go and look at the life. Your, your wonderful pastor has given me the permission to speak on what would be my favorite one, and that would be Ruth. Do you all have favorite Bible characters? And, you know, your, my, my Old Testament one, without question, would be Ruth, when you hear her story. And if you're not familiar with her story, this afternoon you'll want to read it. It is amazing. Hollywood would not do it justice. Go to Ruth. It is the eighth book of, the, uh, of your Bible. And so you'll get to Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Now, folks, you're going to face, if you haven't known this yet, you're going to face a series of crises through the course of your life that are going to come in various forms, and their severity will be in varying degrees. There'll be large ones and small ones. There's going to be sometimes some situation where you have a legitimate need or desire in your life, and it is going unmet, and that is a crisis. There are going to be other times when there's going to be a dark season of, of life that you're going through and life seems bleak, black, and blah. Like a dark season of the soul that will present a crisis in itself. There's going to be a heartbreaking crisis that's going to come as a result of some devastating loss. It could be of a job, could be of a loved one, it could be of a shattered dream. Invariably, at some point, there will be some vital relationship that you have in your life and to your life that's going to go south. And you may experience the crisis of even being falsely accused and betrayed and, and even rejected by that person. Also, as a Christian... As a committed follower of Jesus Christ, let me tell you, you're going to face numerous crossroad of allegiance choices in your life. Numerous, small and large. Will you follow Christ 
or you take the way of compromise. Where you will be confronted to the, to, with the question, will I make the hard, obedient choice, though it may cost me, in friendships, in favor, in finances, in my future? There is a crossroad in every one of these. There is a crossroad. And the crossroad is the crossroad of belief. Because the choice we make will, it will give clear indication at what level do we believe in our God and in his goodness? At what level do we honestly believe God's character is as consistent and as faithful as he says it is? Example, if you're unfairly attacked, and there'll be times when you are, or falsely accused, to the extent you feel the need to attack back or defend yourself, to that extent you are disbelieving the truth that God is your ultimate defense and that you don't need to defend your reputation. That's his job. In your times of disappointment or some life disruption, to the extent when life doesn't go well with you, at a particular time, you go into the sulking and self-pity mode and say, I can't believe all this is happening to me. It's just not fair. And the longer that goes on, the more you are actually believing in your spirit and in your heart, my God is not good and he doesn't know what he's doing. And particularly, in your times of deepest pain and disillusionment, the depth of your actual belief in God's sovereign, God's sovereign rule over you and this world will be exposed. Not what we think it is, not what we say it is, and not maybe even what we teach that it is, but at what level the truth threads that God is perfectly, sovereignly in control of this world, those truth threads have woven themselves in your personal fabric of belief. It will be exposed in your times of deepest pain or disappointment. Thirty years ago was uh, the initial year of my first pastorate, and to be blunt, it was terrible but the hardest year of my life. There's conflict, crisis, personal attacks on me and my family, and I got to the place 10 months in where I, had, where I had enough, and I said, I'm done. I remember telling God, listen, Lord, I did not sign up for this. Well, God had some truth for me to hear, and it came through a, a good friend. His name was Jerry, but really he took on the role of Nathan the prophet. He called me up that week because God moved him to do so. And he had some laser-informing truth for me that day. And this is what he said. Lou, I want you to consider something. Of all the thousands of pastors God could have, would have put or could have put in that particular church, he chose you at this time for that church because he knew two things. First of all, you were the very one that church needed 
to help it grow. And that church was the very one you needed to help you grow. <laughs> now that was a great word. That was a timely word. He reminded me, what did Jerry do? He reminded me of God's sovereign rule over my life. I wasn't there by chance. This didn't happen by chance. He's still in control. He didn't fall off the throne. He didn't go to sleep on me. That he's still ruling. And he has a good plan for what he has me going through right now. And it's the same thing with you. No matter your situation, obviously I don't know them. But whatever that situation is, your God is sovereignly at work through it in your life. And he wants to grow you through it. Every crisis is a test. God is the examiner, and we're the student, and these are the questions. Will I follow my fears or take fearful steps of faith to follow him? To what extent will I turn to him and his word or to my own will and my own wits to get me through or to get me out of this? And to what extent will I take the easy road of compromise or the path of righteousness for his name's sake? What we choose to do, can I say it personally? What you choose to do in your crisis moments will ultimately determine what your life becomes. It will not be what happens to you. It will be how you respond to what happens to you. Not only what your life will become, but what your life will ultimately produce. Following Jesus, honestly, is filled with hard choices. But as we make those choices through the power of a spirit, it changes us. It frees us. It deepens our character. But beyond that, the subsequent impact of those choices will ultimately multiply into the lives of others long after we are gone. Throughout time and into eternity, far beyond what we can imagine. And so what happens is we get so wrapped up in the moment, in the situation, and we lose sight of how will this choice, if it's a selfish one, impact my future choices and my character and my influence? It will all. This story has a setting, everyone does, it sets the stage in which the Bible characters step on, onto. You read in verse 1, with chapter of Ruth, it came about in the days of the judges when they governed that there was a famine in the land. This refers to a roughly a 250-year period when the judges ruled in Israel, which began at the death of Joshua around 1400 B.C. to the time when Saul was anointed king about 11. 50 B.C. This was a time in, Jew in Jewish history that was characterized by weak faith and irresponsible living. And there is in your notes as a very distinct cycle that was repeated roughly seven times in Israel's history. And this cycle is so true of us too. 
First of all, it's like God's cycle of divine discipline. First is the time of peace and prosperity. (coughs) Things were going good in the nation. Things could be going good for us. Everything is good. And that's when we let our spiritual guard down. That's when they did. They went from spiritual fervency to spiritual apathy. This is when second, second stage is when we start just going through religious motions. No real passion for God or dependency on him. Why? Well, because there's no real perceived need. We think we're doing good. We got our stuff. We got our stash. We got our cash. What is missing? Oftentimes what was missing with them, what's missing with us, is a lack of vision for their life on this earth, for our life on this earth. And gosh, this is our day. This is a day in my generation among so many Christians. It's like we hit the retirement time and we think, my, what I'm shooting for is a life of ease to do as I please. That's a, that's a death life. That's the apathy life. It leads to an independent spirit, living life according to our own terms, where idolatry creeps in. And this is what happened with the nation then. Misplaced loves, things, other relationships, work, hobbies, the good life, all come before the giver of life himself. And because God loves us, and because God loves you, he doesn't leave us in that state because the more we run our lives, we ruin our lives. And so he comes in, like he did with the nation Israel, seven times in the book of Judges. He brings famine, and he brings enemy oppression. Um, they were taken over into slavery and ruled by another nation. And it was under this situation that they began to repent and call out to God and fess up, own up. And the process of that, God would raise up a deliverer. He would forgive them and raise up a judge to actually deliver the nation from an enemy. And then it would go back to experiencing peace and prosperity. And so this, this thing would repeat itself. Well, we can see from this text, from verse 1, this was right in the middle of a time of divine discipline. There was famine in the land, and Elimelech, who was the leader of his family, had a choice with his wife and his two sons. Do I stay here, or do I go where there's food? He had a legitimate need. What was wrong with him going to Moab? Well, Moab was a hated land, and Moab was a a land they were forbidden to go to because Moab the people of Moab refused to have Israel, um, did not help Israel when they came out from Egypt. And also, they, at one point, Balak, who was the king of Moab, hired Balaam, a false prophet, to curse Israel. And so in Deuteronomy 23, God made it very clear, don't go to the land of Moab. But either Elimelech ignored 
or did not know of the command, ignored it, or rationalized his way around it. He says, well, I'm hungry. I got to go. My family's got to go. Rather than trust God, he turned to his own reasoning. He turned to his own wits, his own wisdom. And as a result, God took his life. He met with divine discipline there in the land of Moab. Not only him, but his two boys, Malan and Kilian. They chose to stay there as well, and they too died. Now Naomi is facing her own crisis, and it's one of devastating loss, first of her husband and now of her two sons. And she too is at a critical crossroad in all of her emotional grief and her emotional pain. Where would she go with it? Would she cry openly to God with it or merely cry within herself? And if you cry out with the God in her pain, she cried out to God in her pain and in an emotionally and spiritually healthy way, it would enable her to view life through God's circumstances. However, evidently, based on the responses she had, if you look at the text, when no, in verse 3, Naomi's husband died, and she was left with her two sons. And she appealed then to her, to her own daughters-in-law. She said in verse 8, And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each one of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with, with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you find rest each in the house of her husband. And she kissed them and lift up, lifted up her voice and lifted up their voices and wept. And they said, "No, but may we surely return with you to your people." But Naomi said, "Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? In other words, that I could raise up children, a child that could be your husband. Return, my daughters, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope." If I said I would have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore wait and refrain from marrying? Know, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. Then in verse 18 and 19 and 20, when she got back to the city, she said, so they both wept when they came to. So they both went to, until they came to Bethlehem, and it came about when they had come to Bethlehem, and all the city was stirred because of them. And the woman says, "Is this Naomi?" And she said to them, "Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Lord Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty." Notice what happens to Naomi. Notice what happens to us when we go inward with our pain and not upward with it. Our spirit grows bitter. And what happens with when we have that pain, if we don't talk to God openly and honestly in our pain, our pain will poison our spirit and our perspective. It will sour our heart and poison our view of life. We will not be able to see it through God's lens. So here she comes back to her own city, and the people greet her, and she says, I went out full, but I came back empty. And here's this daughter-in-law, loyal daughter-in-law, hanging on her arm. 
the more bitter we get, we don't see what we have. We see what we don't have. And, and I you know, deal with people all the time in this who've chosen to eat their pain, not realizing their pain eats them. It shuts down their heart. It hardens them. If you take your hurts and turn them in where they turn into hates and hardness. And so she faced a crossroad too. It was a painful one. Devastating loss, certainly. A lot of grief. God is there in our grief. We gotta go to him in our grief to be healed of it. But now, on the road back, even it affected the way that Naomi counseled her daughter-in-laws because they faced their own crisis of choice. Notice how she appealed to her daughters-in-law. In verse 14, they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Orpah was faced with a choice. Ruth was faced with a choice. The crisis is, do I go to Bethlehem? Do I go to Israel? And for these two girls, folks, this was a highly significant choice because they would face danger in Israel. They would be very vulnerable there. They would be subject to attack. They could be subject to the lies being taken. This wasn't just like, well, I'll, I'll try to adjust to that land. They would be hated. They would be rejected. It was a risk for them to go. Orpah chose to go back to her gods, take the easy road back, the downhill road into oblivion. But Ruth made a different choice. And her choice <laughs> is an amazing one. Don't miss it. She, I love this verse. But Ruth said, do not urge me to go back to leave you or turn back. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people should be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And, where, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse if anything but death parts you and me. Ruth made the faith choice, the hard choice. And it wasn't to primarily follow her mother-in-law. It was very clear. She was following the God of her mother-in-law. Your God, I want to be my God. I'm done with my gods back there. I ain't going back. I'm going forward. <laughs> There's no turning back. Understand, she felt the very same fears Orpah felt that we would feel. But the difference is, and it makes all the difference in the world, as to what will ultimately come of our lives, she didn't follow her fears. If you feel fear, that's normal. Where we sin is when we follow them. What she did is she followed God in the midst of them, clinging to God's promises as she made those steps. And that's what faith looks like. It just <laughs> looks like clinging to God's promises in the middle of what we fear. And then the fear dis dissipates. Consider the choice she made at the crossroad allegiance moments of her life because, again, 
those choices are going to come to you, large and small. Will I go Godward with my life regardless of what I fear? Even if it costs me, even if I have to suffer, regardless of the unknowns, no matter what, no matter where, or will I take the easier road? Of course, the great and grand ending to her story, and it is great and grand, this is a love story for the ages because Ruth, once she arrived, began to serve in the fields, reaping what they had in that time in the harvest when they would reap the grain they had along the sides where the widows and the orphans could come and, and reap and pick up the, what remained. And she went out in those fields. This woman worked hard. She worked faithfully even though her life was in danger. And in doing so, she caught the eye of the most eligible bachelor in all of Bethlehem. A landowner by the name of Boaz who just happened to be a distant relative of Elimelech and therefore he could become the kinsman redeemer for Ruth to raise up a lineage through her deceased husband. And so I don't want to go into big spoiler alert here, but Obviously, they did get married. You can read it for yourself. Miss Ruth, this downcast, outcast widow from a hated country, ended up becoming an ancestress to Jesus Christ. The ultimate kinsman redeemer. <laughs> the ultimate kinsman redeemer. She became an ancestress to him. He who laid down his life to be the full ransom for us as well as for her. And I, on that road, that day, do you think she had any idea of the impact her life was going to have? Any idea how her life would turn out? None. She wasn't trusting the blueprint. She was to trusting the God who was drawing it. And now, her life story has been written as one of the 66 books of the Bible that has impacted millions, if not billions. Likewise, we have no idea at the moment the impact and influence the small and large choices we make in our today will be multiplied through eternity. Not just in our life, but long after we live. What you choose to do in your crisis moments will determine what your life becomes and what it will produce and who will it influence. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming to earth for us. We thank you that even as we take these elements today, as we're reminded of your great gift for us, how you laid down your life for us, <laughs> coming in the form of a man, taking on the, 
taking on flesh, full embodiment, experiencing all that we've experienced. And we thank you for your lineage. You thank you, God, you have a genealogy of grace. We thank you, God, that we all are equal at the foot of the cross because of your sacrifice and your grace extended to us. And we come today celebrating that in your faithful name. Amen.